Straight Talk Live. Off. Should we get started? Let's go. Let's let's crack on. It's okay. a beautiful day in London. It's also a, a beautiful day here in San Diego. They buy things to impress people that they don't even like. You do have to change the culture. The culture of the organization is the most important. It's as if reality is splintering into multiple shards. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I'm one of your co-hosts, Rick Snyder. I'm the author of Decisive Intuition and the CEO of Invisible Edge and proud co-founder of this amazing not-for-profit podcast where we get to explore the depths of human, digital, and social transformation. And today we have, we're very lucky to have an amazing guest, Jeff Moore, uh, established author, theorist, advisor to some of the most influential uh, leaders and companies in the world. Um, we're going to get more into him in a moment. But first, I want to toss it over to one of my favorite people in the world, my, our co-host, Af Maholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. That's very kind of you. Um, welcome to the, the, the show today. We have a fantastic uh, special guest today. And, um, you know, serendipity has been at work because this particular guest, who I'll introduce uh, in a second, uh, was actually introduced to us by another one of our past guests, Bill Davidow, who, who we know well. And um, as destiny goes, we were meant to have Jeff Moore on our show today. Um, I've uh, got to know Jeff personally in the last two weeks uh, by having a couple of conversations and then, of course, reading his most recent book and then uh, experiencing some of his past books that in my corporate career, of course, became default sort of manuals for large companies to follow, Crossing the Chasm, Zone to Win, and many others. So I'm, of course, Af Malhotra, the co-creator of this wonderful show, a, an entrepreneur, a tech entrepreneur myself, and, and uh, have started a bunch of philanthropic initiatives in my own foundation. In fact, a year and a half ago, uh, triggered by the learnings from this fantastic show. So um, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jeff Moore onto the show. Hello, Jeff. How are you? Well, thank you. I delight to be here, Af. Thank you very much. A real pleasure to have you on the show. And it's an honor, I, I, I must say. And uh, the reason for that is because uh, in the world, you get a few people who have the ability to think in a, an extremely non-conformist, creative uh, way that still appeals to masses. And you have, uh, you have this inimitable ability to do that, not just in your writing and your script, but actually you're a very down-to-earth, nice, relaxed human being or chap, as we say in the UK. Well, I like to be and, a good chap. Uh, I'll aspire to be a good chap. You, you're, you're absolutely a good chap. And you are connected with yourself. You're connected with your family. You're a family man. And of course, the other side of you is is the great work you've been doing as a strategist, as a, an advisor to some of the world's biggest CEOs, most profound CEOs. And of course, you've been in the VC venture capital space too. So you've got this fantastic... Uh, array of experiences. But what's most important, what captured me most, is what you did before all of this, uh, which was related to academia or teaching and being in the field of English lit. And so we all have different dimensions to, to our lives, and that dimension feeds into everything we are today. I'm a musician at, at heart, and I've fallen into other, other aspects of life, business, and so on and so forth. Uh, Rick has a deep passion for psychology and is an author and has fallen into business and, and, and a successful 
uh, with that as well. So today we have a bunch of creative people who think differently about the world and you are the front and center of it. So I'd like to kick the show off with um, a few very important questions. Most will know you or you, of your work. The first question really is, you know, um, I'm going to move forward before I go back. I guess loads of people start to talk about your past work and which, which uh, you know, is noteworthy, no doubt. But again, that's the past and you've moved beyond that because you're about to launch your latest book, um, The Infinite Staircase, which uh, you kindly shared with us. And I've had the pleasure of re reading 50% of the book. Uh, I'm about at, at step seven of, I think, 11, <laughs> and I, the first few steps were harder for me to consume, yes, 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 uh, the, yes. the, chem, the biology, physics, chemistry part of it. And now I'm in my comfort zone, which is, and I'm moving towards narrative and, and consciousness and all of those other good things. Um, but most people will probably not know about this, so I don't want to sort of jump the gun. Firstly, please tell us um, a little bit about yourself, um, you know, whistle-stop whistle tour. Uh, who you are, how you got here. Um, I know it's, it's, it's a long, lustrous career, but it'd be good to know. And then f tell us about this new book, and then we'll go back and forth and we'll keep this conversation as organic as possible. Okay. Well, I think I think most people would know me, as you said, as, a, as an author, an advisor, a speaker around the technology thing. And Crossing the Chasm was the seminal book. It came out in 1990, and it allowed me to, to write a, a, a series of other books what all the books have in common, by the way, including the current one we're gonna talk about in a minute, is I don't know the answer to the problem I'm trying to address when I start working on the book. All I know is that I think it's an important problem that needs attention. And so I think my method of, of, of doing that is to staple myself to the problem and just not let go. Mm. And so that, and what happens when you write a book, by the way, is, and you get to something that's pretty decent, people want you to speak about it. And then some other people say, well, come on in and help us apply your ideas. And so you go in and do that. That's the consulting business. And then in the middle of that, you realize, you know, there's other problems. And by the way, even the problems I think I solved, I didn't really nail it. So first thing you do is you add a few slides to your slide deck and you add one more module here and more. And then pretty soon you've got this pile of stuff and you think, oh God, I got to write another book. And so it just leads to seven books. I mean, one after another, after another, after another. Yeah. Prior to that, by the way, just as a tiny book into this, I started life as an English professor with a, with a literature degree. And my home turf, like yours is in music and Rick's is in, is in psychology, mine's in, in literature. And yeah. I would just make the point, because we're going to talk about narrative a, a bit in the new book, that narratives are at the core of everything I've done, and, and particularly venture capital. Venture mm -hmm. capital is all about storytelling, because there, there aren't any facts here. It's all about how credible is the story? Do you believe in the story? Will you invest in this story? And can you make the story come true? Mm -hmm. so I think yeah. stories has sort of kind of been my life, and, and I'm a storyteller. I come from an Irish-American family, so we've told stories, I mean, you know, around the dinner table since time immemorial, and I think I'm still telling stories today. Mm. Wonderful. Tell us, tell us about this latest story around the infinite staircase. Um, what does that mean? First of all, I know it's coming out in a few days. So we're very, we're celebrating with you in that. Um, and tell us more about what was the impetus behind this and what is the infinite staircase? Yeah, because you know, you, you were talking a minute ago about, about transformations. So the whole idea, the, the infinite staircase, the problem I was trying to staple myself to was this twofold problem. One is, <clears throat> If you believe in a secular universe, in a world that was not, you know, divinely created, but evolved or emerged, how the heck did that happen? And there's a lot of really specialized knowledge about that at various parts of that journey. 
but it's very, very hard to stitch together end to end. And I just kind of started gnawing at that problem. And I, what I wanted to do was to say, I want to put together a coherent statement of the modern secular story of cre from creation to now, from the Big mm -hmm. Bang to, to, this, to this podcast. How in the world could you get from A, a to B? Mm -hmm. And the first two thirds of the book is about that. And, and as Af was saying, it, 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 it falls into three chunks. There's a kind of a hard science chunk at the beginning because the world starts with physics. And yeah. at the beginning, there's nothing else. It's just, mm -hmm. just physics. And then out of that, there's a transformation where it adds a layer of chemistry on top of the physics. Mm -hmm. So how did that work? Then on Earth, and maybe no place else in the universe that we know of, but certainly on Earth, chemistry added a layer called biology. Well, that was pretty amazing. And by the way, the molecular biology of the cells that talk, that's just like an infinitely expanding universe. But that's all the geeky stuff. And to Af's point, if you're not geeky, there could be a little bit of heavy lifting there, okay? But then that sets up more complex organisms and consciousness. And now we're saying, okay, consciousness. But not, but don't be too quick because consciousness starts with animals that don't have language. And so what is consciousness mm -hmm. if you don't have language? How does that work? How do values emerge from consciousness? How does culture emerge from values? And all of that can happen before you're human. In other words, I think birds have cultures, deer have cultures, they have values, but then language comes in and then it's like, okay, now, now, we're, now we're on this podcast because language really is the game changer. So that emerges out of culture and values. And then out of language, we get narratives and we get analytics and eventually we get theory. And that, so that's the infinite staircase. And it, 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 you know, it's, it's pretty long. But the other half of the book was, okay, cool story, interesting, fine. Um, what does it have to do with me? I mean, you know, I, I'm here on this planet for a while, not forever, so what am I supposed to do? And mm -hmm. then you're trying to connect metaphysics, which is kind of how does the world work, with ethics. What, what am I supposed to do? Which is the ultimate strategy model. The ultimate strategy model is what is the situation you're faced with and how do you act in that situation? So this mm -hmm. is like, okay, strategy for living, at, you know, kind of at the, at the most global you could get. And so the last third of the book is about, you know, how do you live? It talks about kindness and fairness as kind of these personal um, strategies for living around people we know or are close to. And then morality and justice is more about how do you do that more globally with people that are larger institutions. And, 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 and again, try to work through that because we're right now in a tough spot in our society where there's a lot of questioning about what is moral and what is just. Yeah. What is fair? What is kind? And so I wanted to wrestle with that. And then the last chapter is called Being Mortal. And it's just about, okay. And by the way, there's a time limit to this game. Mm -hmm. So how do you want to play? And so yeah. that was that was kind of the deal. Two, yeah. two burning questions. Uh, first of all, I love you articulating the staircase. <clears throat> I can see it as you're talking about it. So really helpful how you just rolled that out. Okay. Um, one first question is, why did you choose to narrate the story through a secular lens? And then question number two do you get into the fact of animals having languages such as whales in, in tracking sonar or uh, even elephants are able to speak in decibels below our comprehension? So we're just curious how that fits into your staircase. Uh, let me do the first one. I think the second one's the big question. The first one's just a tiny one. I think by, uh, the language of animals is tactical but not strategic, meaning it can't get beyond the present. It, it's in the present where they're communicating in the present. It's a little bit like signaling. Right. But they can't communicate it across generations, or they can't build a, a, a body of intellectual property. And so when I say language, I really am probably making that, that distinction. Mm -hmm. But the really interesting question is, why, you know, how did, why secular and why not religious? Because 
you know, when I was back to my dissertation, that very first dissertation I did, which was in a Renaissance poem by a guy named Edmund Spencer called The Fairy Queen, that world had a staircase. But instead of a staircase built from the bottom up, it was a staircase built from the top down. It's called the great chain of being. And it started with God. And then it had the higher angels and the lower angels. And then you got to mankind. And then you got to the higher animals and plants. You got down to earth, fire, water, and air at the bottom. So it's the same. Really, it was a staircase. The problem with starting at the top of that staircase, if you start with perfection and an intelligent designer, by the time you get down to looking around at what you're looking at, you say, well, somebody, something went wrong somewhere because right. A, this doesn't feel very intelligent, and B, what the heck's going on here? Mm. And, and so this, you get into this problem, and then you start having people getting very righteous about, well, my vision of the top of the staircase mm -hmm. is right, and yours is wrong. And by the way, if I have to kill you to prove that, I'd be happy to do that. Hence, so, hence the history of, of humankind. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, and, well, and, and by the way, in the absence of evolution, what other explanation could you have? I mean, until mm. until Darwin came along, it's like, well, I mean, you know, there's no other way to explain the world except to say that God created it. Now mm. there's another explanation. Doesn't necessarily mean it's, you know, I don't want to try. I'm very careful, and I do not want to in any way dishonor religion because it has a huge part in my. It's had a huge part in my life. It's had a huge part in the world. But I did want to honor the alternative, and that's kind of what the book's about. Mm. You know, I just yeah. this is bubbling. Also, I just got to ask this: is it seems like in today's world, science is the new religion in today's world and the new paradigm that runs the, the narrative of how things work and what's going on. And yet we're seeing, even with that, there's a lot of interpretations of science and COVID is a great example of how we look at that. And there's just so many different narratives that are conflicting and data that's conflicting and so much confusion around and then people willing to not quite go to war, but there's a lot of tension being created around the narratives of science today. Well, I, and I would argue that the narrative of science are very threatening to a, a very large population who are actually vitriolically and violently opposed, not because, not because exactly what a scientist is saying, but because they're at core of their identity, there's a part of their identity that's either being, being threatened or they're just angry and they want to take it out on on folks. So we've lost control of the narrative of the, uh, in our society right now, if, even just going back to my childhood. In my childhood when I was growing up, there was, a, there was always a, a, a truth balancing factor between the narrative you told and then you trusted the press or, the, or the, you know, some, some body of reasonably objective scholars or, 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 or journalists or whatever to sort of provide a correction. And you kind of felt like Walter Cronkite was sort of the, the, the newscaster of my generation. If Walter said it, it was true, right? Yeah. Well, we are, we are so far off of that uh, norm, you can't even imagine it. And in fact, it's not clear to this, to me at any rate, how we get back to some kind of normalizing mm relation the polarization right now is so is so mm -hmm. you know violent that mm -hmm. it, we, we need and we need to find a way back um, I, I think biden's trying to walk in his way is trying to walk a way back we'll see if the society follows we'll see mm -hmm. uh state let's stay with that for a moment because i think um and we'll come back to the book because the, the implications of the book in the short medium and long term are quite significant if it's interpreted in the right way by the right people at the right time, and they do something about it. Of course, and that's that's the that's the stuff that's out, out of our control. Other than that, yeah, yeah, we've we've detached ourselves from the outcome for a moment. Okay, um, and let's go back to something I know you feel very passionate about, and I think we talk about this on the show uh, quite a lot and have in the past episodes, which is, and I'm going to just call a spade a spade, which is the concept and the idea of um, lying. 
So the nice way of putting that is a false narrative, as you put it, which is politically correct and it's, it's delicate. But let's just say, let's call it lying. And um, the implications of, of lying in society today are multi-generational. I don't know what's going to happen in the future because trust has been eroded um, at its core. And so in the old days, and when I say old days, I'm talking 10 or 15 years ago even, when books were released and thought leaders produced material, you sort of took it as... Yeah, it's pretty objective. Good little framework there. I could deploy it in my business. And that was on the premise that there were some consistencies, some level of objectivity somewhere. So you, you gave the newscaster as an example. Everyone has their own example. Uh, and parents are a good example. Hey, by the way, you know, you, if everything fell apart, you went to your parents and you hope that they tell you the truth. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm not sure if parents know what the truth is today either. So uh, there, there lies the fundamental problem. Let me, let me ask you this then. So tell us what bothers you today, because you, you articulated it beautifully when we spoke on the pre-call. So what is, what is your issue today? You're a parent, you're a grandparent, you're a business leader, you're a writer, author, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, what is this issue with lying that's, that's pissing you off, that's upsetting you? Well, so so it, this is important. It, it, it relates to to communities of trust. You use the word trust, which is really important. Yeah. So the way we organize our lives as mammals is we hang out with some people that are close to us, and that is a, whether it's a family or a team or a community or whatever, and that's a that's a community of trust. And inside that community of trust, mm. even today, you mustn't lie. And by the way, that community of trust will do lie detection and it will expel people from the community of trust if they are not trustworthy. And so, right. so, so, so trust in that level still works. But it used to be that that boundary of trust, as you just pointed out, could be extended well into society. And particularly academics and journalists were two sources uh, of, of sort of integrity. Both of those sources of integrity have been have been badly, badly eroded. The academics have got become eroded because they became they, they got off into a set of abstractions and self-referential and weird deconstructed. A whole bunch of stuff happened that basically most people looked at it and said, "Well, I don't know what they're doing, but that's baloney." And the journalists became, as we remember, we brought personal journalism in with Truman yeah. Capote and Gore Vidal. We thought this is really exciting. Well, then all of a sudden it's like, "Well, hang on." Where's the objective versus the subjective? And mm -hmm. then you have this, you know, the whole point of view, well, you know, what's truth or what's subjective? And, you know, again, the academics coming in going, well, you know, it's all relative anyway. And now all of a sudden we've eroded the social consensus that was started with the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment actually believed in reason and truth and verification and analytics. Mm -hmm. And we've subsequently eroded that. Uh, not stupidly. I mean, there, because there, there are all, there, there's subtleties there, but we've now gotten to the point where society is not confident, and therefore lying becomes an incredibly powerful tool. And mm. and, and and you you have this entire class of individuals who say, A, I know I'm lying. B, I'm going to lie anyway. Mm. C, my standard is if you can't prove I'm lying, you have to believe I'm telling the truth, which of course is a terrible standard, but it's, but it's the one that they're using. And by the way, the academic world doesn't have a very good answer to, to that to that challenge and the people that are listening to them the people that are not getting well, i mean in my case I, I want people to get vaccinated i'll just the people that are not the people that believe whatever it is that i don't want them to believe whatever that is i actually think they know these people are lying but it's like yeah but this is the story i want to i want to cling to this is my mm -hmm. story yeah and so and, and we have this you know, this thing about individual rights and I'm entitled to my story and I don't have to wear a mask and I don't have to do this and I don't have to do that. It's like, 
Yeah, you do. Yeah, you live in society. Mm-hmm. But, but that social norm and that and civility, which sort of says, hey, whether you're from this side or that side, we all have to live together. That's when we say polarizing, that's the thing that's getting ripped apart. Mm-hmm. That's what pisses me off. That's what scares me. Mm-hmm. No, just to follow up with this, um, this has been a theme for me in the business world, but also just in leadership around, you know, st- story is power and narrative is power and how I tell the narrative and how I influence the audience. And we're seeing that left, right, and center. And that everyone realizes that now the psychology behind, you know, <clears throat> advertising, storytelling, all these things are so related. Um, we, are, we are creatures of narrative. Narrative for sure. Have it. And by the way, think about the positive. You know, we're talking about the negative. Let's go. Right. Steve Jobs, one of the best storytellers. You know, Martin Luther King. Yes. You know, Obama was a great storyteller. Um, right. Reagan was a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, stories... I mean, I argue in the book that the best way to understand yourself is as a character in a series of stories. Mm-hmm. That in fact, the way you live your life is you say, I want to act the way my character should act in these various stories. And people mm-hmm. tell stories about you and you tell stories about them. You tell stories about yourself, but it's stories. Every day yeah. I, I come home and I say, hi, hi, Marie, how was your day today? She tells me a story. How was your day? I tell her a story, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, how are things going with your, with your new investment? It's another story. story mm. And so stories are so central to how we are as a as being. Yes. And, and the fact is we, and this is because I happen to train myself in analytical, the literary criticism, the analysis of stories. Most people are very naive about how much power stories have over them. Mm-hmm. And they're not, I think we, if we could become a little bit more critically aware, because we've got to embrace them. I mean, stories are us, right? It's not like, it's not like you can live without them. And by the way, leaders who can't tell good stories have real trouble leading to your mm-hmm. point totally. because they can't, they can't engage people. That's right. So it's really important that we do it. The thing is so angering me right now is to watch the malicious manipulation of people through deliberately false stories yes. where the person knows they're false and is still going, but I'm going to use this for power. That, that makes me angry. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's follow that right now. Cause that's a hot one today. Um, I love what you just said there, that the manipulation of story when they're consciously doing that. Here's a question for you. How does that relate to censorship? And here's where I want, where I want to ask that question. You know, and, um, when, for example, like when a year and a half ago, when we were COVID, the lab leak theory came out about a year and a half ago, people were being censored and deplatformed for bringing that theory up as a possibility. So you couldn't even allow the conversation to happen, even on YouTube and in place in Facebook and things like this. So how does that work around censorship, being yeah. able to debate a story, manipulate the story? That's where it gets really interesting to me. Well, mm-hmm. well get, and, and now we're talking about the deconstruction of truth because, yeah. because now you're saying, okay. And the, by the way, that initial decertifying of the Wuhan thing was from the left, right? I mean, in other right. words, it's not a right. I mean, the, the, current, the current intellectual establishment is heavily gated to liberalism. And, 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 and by the way, but it has its own form of righteousness. Now, it's much easier right. for it to see the righteousness in the other guy's mind than in mine. I'm, I'm not right. righteous. Right. I'm, I'm reasonable. Right. They're righteous. Right? <laughs> but, but, but to get to the issue of censorship, censorship, I talk about censorship in the context of justice, which is the highest, most abstract, most challenging form of, of trying to essentially execute fairness at scale. Justice is really, really hard to make work. And so censorship is, a, is, is not 
it's not a, 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 a it's like a big hammer trying to deal with a scalpel problem it just doesn't it's not going to work right mm-hmm. but the notion that you have no that therefore if censorship is not the right tool i have no responsibility for the for the consequences of my speech mm-hmm. baloney you know, this is where the idea of karma, I'm not, I'm not an Eastern mm. philosopher, but this is where the idea of karma is, man, you say it, you own it, dude, and you said it. Mm-hmm. And if you mess with poop, you're going to smell like poop. <laughs> and right now the odor, <laughs> a lot of odor in the air. So, so you know, I, I really want people to kind of go, come on, people, stop this. I mean, you know, we're, we can be better than this. We need to be better than this. Our children expect better from us. We're not stepping up to the level that I think we should. And I think I think that I think the danger of censorship is when one side starts to do that, it's gonna it's a monster that keeps growing, and and then the other side's gonna get that at some point too. And I don't think people understand the bigger picture when you start. You, 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 look, let's take China because everybody, you know, everybody said, "Well, you know, China's yeah. got this incredible censor censor oriented thing, and they're going to censor the internet." Yes, they are. By the way, there's a lot of people in China think, and that's the right thing to do because we're on this societal mission and. We have to all have discipline and we all have to, you know, we can't get distracted and it's got to be whatever. Well, you know, that is a, that, that's coherent. It, it, it's not the American way, but it's mm-hmm. coherent. So yeah, we have to be, res- we're not, we're not honoring each other and we're not honoring differences enough. Mm-hmm. We talk about diversity, but we're playing lip service to diversity. Yeah. And when it gets to any diversity mm-hmm. that challenges our identity, mm-hmm. we tend to shrink back into being pretty parochial. And that's mm. that's not good. We 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 gotta you know step up. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk about. I just want to draw your attention to a really interesting um, parallel that I f- I felt um, you should be given the opportunity to explain further. So if you think about um, three elements we're discussing, we're talking about lies, and we're look, we're talking about the state of society, um, led by some politicians who even to this state around the world continue to perpetuate those lies and we somewhat um, somehow even in democratic environments accept them and then we perpetuate perpetuate them in our subgroups and our microgroups and we justify it by saying well it's a form of belonging it's my tribe I have the rights and, and, and that's one way of looking at the world then in the center you've got this fantastic book that you've just written which is hopefully maybe it's a different audience maybe it's not time will tell maybe it's the same audience of CEOs that read the other books who will naturally want to read your new book. I would imagine, why would someone not want to read another book from Jeff Moore after reading the last one? Interesting. Let's see what he's got to say and pick up this book, hopefully, and go beyond whatever chapter or read the beginning or read the middle or whatever. You know, you can go to any step in the staircase, um, frankly, and try and... um, evolve just a little bit, try and uh, be more in touch with their sense of purpose, their mindset, their ethics, ethics being such an important topic. So that's your book. And then on the other side, it's, I just want to touch on one really phenomenal book that you wrote, which I think was very straightforward, which is Zone to Win. And uh, where you talk about these sort of established company zones and then disruptive company zones and performance and productivity, which we know of, which is the front front office, back office. I'm speaking very crudely about it, but front office, back office. The 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 other element was the the big tech um, elements to it, where you have an incubation zone. You know where you see a lot of big companies trying to do this, and some succeeding, some failing. And then, frankly, this seismic transformation that most people are scared. Uh, of going down and therefore they end up being a casualty of complacency. So how about this? At the end of the day, um, if we want the world to change, it's going to be down to people. 
and people who are also a parents and and uh, you know align with the book and the philosophy and the thinking and and disturbed by the fact that the society is filled with false narratives but the, that same person becomes the ceo always the leader in one of those large companies that of course are following some of the the frameworks that that you've put together in zone to win kit do you not think that there is i'm being hopeful do you not think that same person will take what you've just written go back to their organizations and say right framework aside what do we really do about you know life and ethics and society and and why why i'm saying this too is because when i read your book and i've I've, i'm halfway through it like i said that's what i've taken away i've taken away uh, an author who writes extremely well, who was talking about something relating to the world of business. But actually, I related to it as a person because I have so many different avatars, so many different personas in life. So I actually think the work you've created, and let, forget about it being best-selling or not, I'm sure it will be, I think the piece of work you've created is very important and it's timely because of the problems that we are suffering in society. Now, let me get to the question. The question <laughs> really is, the question really is, do you not think Mark Benioff, um, Satya Nadella, and all of the other amazing CEOs that you advise and have advised and are friends with, do you not believe they have the responsibility? Also being very wealthy and owning market share and mind share and attention, have the responsibility to pioneer a lot of this change, uh, not just the politicians. Yeah, no, in fact, I think they may be better positioned than, than the politicians. Uh, because they have they have more creative freedom. They're they're not they're not elected. I mean they're they're playing a different role. Let me be clear. I think Mark inspired me to write this book. I don't think I inspired Mark. I think he inspired me. Right. Mark oh, Mark challenged me for a long time, saying, you know, you're keeping your business values separate from your. You, you, there's a bigger story to tell here. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got work to do, Mark. Stop it. <laughs> uh, but, but, but it was yeah. like, you know, but it, so in a way, you could kind of argue that maybe this book was was actually ignited by by him kind of. Gently, but personally, sort of challenging me. What you do? What, and remember, I started as an English teacher. Why? Why would you be an English teacher? Well, you in a liberal arts education, what you're trying to do is you're trying to empower the student to lead a more complete, full human life. Okay, yeah. that it that that goes underneath everything I'm trying to do. I mean, from from the very first time I taught freshman English to this book that came out right now. So, yeah. in one sense. And for me, the, the tool that I can bring to the table is I call them frameworks. But yeah. basically, what they're, they're, it's, a, it's a way of looking at a situation. So the first part of strategy is always before you try to act, try to internalize the situation, the real dynamics. Most people tend to, cat, to, to, to look at, they, they don't see the whole picture. They tend to overfocus on a part of the picture. So the first part of any book, it, like the mm -hmm. technology adoption lifecycle or like the four zones or whatever is, hey, step back and see if we can't see the entire field of play. Mm -hmm. Okay, now let's figure out how we wanna play locally within that. that so think globally, act locally, that, that whole idea uh, is, is what I'm trying to do. And in every one of these things, and as I get older in particular, you realize, Look, this isn't business or government or this is this is our life. And, and, mm. and the last chapter, being mortal, is kind of like, hey guys, this is a game played with a timeline, right? There's an end to this game. So so how do you want to play? And what do you want to get out of this game? And how do you want to show up in this game? And then and then showing up 
is in any part of your life. You know, um, I write that, that Mark has this thing called V2 Moms, vision and values, and then mich, meth, mich, uh, methods, obstacles, and measures. Yeah. I've actually used that for myself, both for my, but when I write my V2 Mom, like the first big method of this year was be a better, be a better spouse, be a better person at home. The second one was make a bunch of money doing such and such. I mean, the, 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 in other words, it's, but it's all part of one life. And I mm. think when we compartmentalize, the danger is we can compartmentalize. And then if we take our ethics and compartmentalize our ethics, right. we can excuse a bad behavior over here because, you know, at home, of course, I would know. Hitler at home loved cats and children. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so so, so I, I think the more we try to integrate and, and, and try to be, you know, consistent across the whole thing. So that led to this book, which is sort of saying, okay, well, if you expand the aperture as far as you possibly can, now what does it look like and what does that say about how we might have to act in the world yeah yeah no i'm with you fantastic zone um what, what, there's a couple of questions coming in actually and we might tackle them as we're going through the the the, the show um let me should i take this one rick go for it facebook it's a it's a it's a it's a long one so when you talk about stories and lying uh, what do you see as a solution it's the first part of the question jeff yeah, second yeah. Well, let's, let's do it the first yeah. part and then we'll come yeah. out to the second part. Yeah. Because look, every story, I mean, uh, so how, so for example, is Hamlet a lie or truth? I mean, Shakespeare wrote a play called Hamlet. Is he lying or is he telling the truth? It's called fiction. So how do you evaluate the quality of Hamlet? And you say, look, is it, first of all, is it true to itself? Is it coherent? Yeah. Does it make sense? And then if you want to go a little bit further, is it respectful of Hmm. Our, our role in the world. And so I think, I think the, the thing that when, I, when we're talking about lying, let me be clear about this, because, for example, if, if somebody comes up to you and say, does this dress, if your spouse comes up to you and says, does this dress make me look fat? Your answer is, of course not. Okay. Now, you may or may not be telling the truth, but, but, but so, so lying isn't the real issue. The real issue is when you're doing lies that are incoherent and malicious. Mm -hmm. And so that, and by the way, we have tests for coherence and we have tests for malice. And so we can, we can test that. I, I, I don't think being virtuous about lying is the right, because for example, you know, I, if, if you believe in a religion, well, somebody else believes in another religion. Was one of them lying? Right. Right. No. I mean, so, so, so we have to be, you know, we have to, are you being coherent and are you being life supporting? If mm -hmm. you're being both of those things, then I'd be okay. Mm, fair play. So that's, it's a, it's a good distinction. Uh, the second part of the question, I think, talks to to the real reason for the question, which is, uh, what do you see? Um, so, what do you see as a solution? You've explained that. I think education is key, but I feel a bit hopeless uh, about this problem when you have state legislatures um, brackets driven only by desire to stir up the voters that are controlling what is being taught in schools, regardless of whether it is truth or not. Yeah. I, I think, look, I, this is where, you know, the, the, the mechanisms of justice or censorship or societal control are hammers and we, we're trying to deal with things that should be done with forks and knives and, 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 and whatever. I would just encourage this person, I, I want to give you a little bit of optimism. Yeah. Your children are smarter than that. And I don't care what you're, by the way, I don't know if you remember being a high school student, but I didn't listen very well. I don't know about you. So the uh -huh. first thing you do is trust your kids not to listen anyway. But second of all, it, what, what does make a difference is the conversation around the dinner table. What yeah. does make a difference is can you engage your, your children 
in, in authentic conversations, listen to their stories, not impose your story on them. One of the things that's very tough about being a parent is unconsciously we do impose our narratives on our children. We think our children are part of our story and that we want them to reflect on our mm -hmm. story well. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, and, and yes, I get it. And, 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 and not, not, not entirely wrong, but come on. It's their life. You know, you're, you're, you're in service to them more than they are in service to you. And sometimes we we get that backwards as a parent. We got I think we have to be thoughtful about that. I do think you know as you get into higher education, I think higher education needs kind of a big reboot. It it, it, it this thing about having a research in university and publisher parish, and 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 and, and it's led to a very very sterile academic environment that that nobody likes. Even the people that do it don't like it. These peer-reviewed journals that just go, you know, on right. and on and on. Well, and so getting back to why are we even doing, why are we having an education and what are we really trying to do? I think there's a lot on the table to work with. And I think there's a lot of people that are good at, at doing that. Yeah. I, we talk about business. The wonderful thing about business is business, there are consequences to creativity. In other words, it's not just being creative because mm. to get an A on a test or, or not. You're, you're competing against other companies to, to, get, to get business. It, a, it's fun. B, it, it creates value in the world. And, it, and it's like playing tennis with a net. And there's a real net. You, you can hit the ball into the net and lose the point. And, mm -hmm. In school, it's kind of hard. to. It's almost like there's not a net. So, mm -hmm. so, so I, think, I, think there's a, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Mm, gotcha. I want to ask you a question from a different staircase, a different doorway of the staircase. And that is more just you as student. Um, so obviously you have been a mentor to, uh, you've mentioned Mark and Tim and other amazing leaders that you've worked, gotten to work with. What have you learned from them? What have you learned from getting to work with some of the most brilliant minds in the world? Yeah. And I'm just curious, some of the themes that have mostly impacted you in being in those conversations and how it's contributed to your narrative. Yeah. Well, a lot, I mean, a, a whole lot. Um, so uh, I mentioned Mark, uh, the, the lot of things I've learned from Mark, but the one, my favorite one is, Mark is a relentless prioritizer. So if you come to him and say, there are four or five things I want to focus on, he says, great, put them in rank order. And, <laughs> and, and, and he'll say, and then when you do it, he'll test you on it. He'll say, so number one is more important than number two. I said, yeah, that's why I put number one first, number two. <laughs> and, but what happens is you get down to like number four or five and he goes, now it's four more important than five. And you're going, well, well, then wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and so, 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 just that act. It, 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 what it is? It's, it's, and by the way, the common theme here, because if you connect, Mark and Satya are very, very different leaders, but they both are humble. Now, Satya sounds humble. Mark doesn't sound humble. Mark is humble. Satya is humble. Mm -hmm. I think Tim. I don't know Tim Cook very well, but I think Tim Cook is humble. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think the great leaders at some point are in service too which is kind of where I ground humility. I am in service to, as opposed to somebody, as opposed to other leaders who want other people to be in service to them. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, think, I think that's a big, a big deal. The other thing I, I like about these leaders is courage. I am not by nature a courageous person, and, but you need to be. I mean, it's, you, you, you need to be courageous. And so period, I, mean, I have to sort of <laughs> build up to getting courageous and, and watching these people and watching the stuff that they have to go through, you know, watching them on earnings calls mm -hmm. and, and whatever. It's like, okay, Jeff, come on, step up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I get inspired by, by their courage. Mm. You had an opportunity to spend quite a bit of time with Cisco and uh, J uh, John Chambers when he was there. And you talk about how you were invited into the, the you know, the 
the trusted layer of the circle of trust yeah. and hence you wrote one of your one of your books on the back of it uh tell us a little bit about how that experience because you know hearing it from your standpoint as someone who then goes off and produces a fantastic piece of content that is game-changing is one part but then what did you learn what did you pick up what were those nuances because that, I, I find that you know some writers and some people's academics consultants out there and I'm, I'm, you know we can say what we want here so it's fine um they are detached from reality because a lot of it happens in the ivory tower and back to your point around peer review after peer review so the real experience of listening to what executives are saying what's what's going on there's politics there's you know a bit of turf war going on talk, talk us through that experience that would have been phenomenal you know there's well it's if there, I don't know if you saw the musical Hamilton, but by the way, if you've never oh, yeah. seen it, that's find fantastic. A way to see it. But yeah. there's this wonderful song about, you know, no one was there when, in the room where it happened, in the room yeah. where it happened, in the room where it happened. Mm -hmm. yeah. So mm -hmm. the privilege of being invited into the room where it happens mm -hmm. is huge. And, and because what happens is, is that if you don't, if, and by the way, a peer of mine or a contemporary of mine, I think probably, I have more respect for him than to say he's a peer. Clay Christensen was an amazing mm -hmm. business scholar at Harvard Business mm -hmm. Review. He, at his, by the time, and Andy, by the time Andy Grove had kind of given him an endorsement, he could get into any company in the world and do research in any company in the world. Mm -hmm. The problem is, but you work through graduate students and you work through interviews and you work through whatever. And there, you just don't, you don't get the reality of the company. You, 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 you get a very scholarly, well-organized body of data mm -hmm. and to the degree that data is informing, but remember data is not narrative. Mm -hmm. Data is analytics. In my view, narrative precedes analytics and you don't get the narratives. So what's cool about being in the room where it happens is you get the narratives you hear. And you, and by the way, if you listen and I I'm tuned to hear narrative anyway, right. And I'm tuned to hear metaphors. Metaphors is another way people kind of reveal their, their, vision of the world and so when i listen to metaphors and I listen to narratives so yeah and i was in that I, I, I was in their quarterly business strategy reviews for two years so it was and, and by the way you also get to build relationships you have fun with them you 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 you, you, you build trust and that's that's another thing that, that, that i think the key leaders have taught me which is nothing happens nothing of significance happens without trust that would be clear it's not quite true in a collaboration culture Nothing of significance happens without trust. In a competition culture, fear can actually take the place of trust. I, I am terrible at dealing with, well, I, mean, I have no courage anyway, but I'm, I don't like fear cultures and I can't advise fear cultures. And so mm -hmm. there's been a number of very successful companies that would not want me in the room and I wouldn't want to be in the room either. So, But for collaboration cultures, which are based on building a community of trust and then bringing value to the world in service to customers, all this stuff lines up very well in that world. And that's, that's kind of my mm. place. Mm. Have you ever worked with a fear-based culture or kind of that top-down type of leadership, but felt like you could make an impact? You could shift and change. No. They, they were somehow malleable enough. You, no. Did you ever work in that bandwidth? No, what happened, but, but, I, I, first of all, I do think they can, I, I think any culture can be improved. Mm -hmm. But my personal, I am, I'm too intimidated mm. and, 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 and I'm also kind of outraged. And so mm -hmm. I, I, I just, it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is, because it could periodically, I'll get, I'm, particularly early on when I would take any business. I mean, when you're starting a business, you're mm -hmm. not very discriminating about who you're going to work with, right? So I would get hired by somebody who I kind of knew this is not my, this is not my dish of tea, but you know, I, I have children, I've got to feed them. Come on. Yeah. So, so I can do something. What you realize is, in, at least in my experience, 
those leaders wanted to use me as a tool. Mm. This guru is going to be programmable. This mm. guru will say what I want them to say. That mm. will give me a, 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 another stick to accomplish what I want to accomplish. I see. And and I and as I saw that, that that's why I got very I mean, uh, guru. I, I, I realized I do not want to be a guru mm-hmm. because gurus are, are just a, they're a tool. Mm. Uh, and so th- that's why I, that's why I wanted to transfer the power to the framework. Mm. Yeah. It's not about what Jeff. Who cares what Jeff said? Mm-hmm. But if the framework. If the framework makes visible a set of forces in the world that you can act on in a constructive way, mm. more power to the framework. And by the way, mm. you should own the framework too because it's 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 public, it's intellectual property that's to be shared in the world. Anybody can improve a framework, not just the author. Mm-hmm. And and so let let, but it kind of democratizes it democratizes the, the the situation. Whereas an authoritarian leader wants just the opposite. They want to pull it all inside and say it's all my will. And you must obey my will, or I will throw you under the bus. Mm. Of course, the mm. buses get higher and higher and higher as people get more. And more people get thrown under. Them. <laughs> well, what bus, do you think? There's a bus somewhere in the Republican Party now that I think must reach to the sky. <laughs> yeah, um, we I'm won't so go. We, we won't go into politics. I'm, I'm biased. I'm so biased. The world is in a the world is in an interesting place. So that's in a Pandora's box. Okay. Um, just another one on startups, because of course you've invested in companies um, as a venture capital and advised companies that were probably had crossed the chasm to some extent and now were huge companies and had their you know the next phase of growth and, and i'm sure you've done a lot of amazing work at, throughout your career what is, what is your view on the um the future um, of of new companies uh, given that we're at an interesting point where you've got these huge gigantic massive multi-trillion dollar market cap technology companies actually quite bizarre no non-technology companies in the five or ten list out there right, 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 Real interesting place to be. Uh, must be amazing for you to see as well. Uh, what is your What are your views on the future of startups and the kind of founders you're seeing out there in the context of your book? So I'm just trying to see if I can yeah. juxtapose that. Well, okay, yeah. So <laughs> a couple of thoughts. By the way, I, I think the reason you see these trillion dollar behemoths uh, right now is digital transformation is is at the scale of the industrial revolution. You know, 150 years ago. In other words. It's creating a handful. There's never like 50 companies that run the world. It's, it's always less than 20. And, right. and, and we're getting a new 20. Okay, And, and, and <laughs> just like the automobile industry had its thing and the railroads had its thing. We're just getting a new 20. So, so that, that's one phenomenon. And that I think is, is pretty damn stable. I don't, I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon because we are now a digitally transformed world and we're going to yeah. stay digitally transformed. <clears throat> now, startups are always working at the boundary of what works and what doesn't work. The good news about the world is by and large, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So by and large, there's an infinite number of problems that startups can work with. Mm -hmm. And so again, the startup, you can start with a technology. If if you're in the lab, you can say, okay, I've now invented a a solution and I got to go looking for a problem. And and, and with very disruptive technologies, that's what happens. Like quantum computing. Quantum computing, we're still trying to figure out how in the world would you ever actually make that work. But if you could make it work, then you'd start saying, okay, now what problems do I have to solve? But for most startups, for most people who are not coming out of, you know, MIT, Lab One, whatever it is, it's more like, well, what's a, what's a domain that I'm interested in? And in that domain, what is the current frontier between solution and problem? And that frontier can move. Like we talked earlier today about AI is moving the frontier of what compute solve and solve. 
it was it was only 10 years ago that the, there was the guy that the guys that published the book uh, i can't remember their names right now who said well, of course computers will never drive a car okay well so 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 now if you're a truck driver you're thinking well mm -hmm. so what's mm -hmm. that about but the point is it, yes we've moved the frontier between where the problem and the solution is but that frontier never goes away so the real question is can you stay at the frontier are you willing to move migrate to the frontier and and you know people who are young are going, yeah, yeah, that's where it's cool. I love being at the frontier. As you get older, you're thinking, oh man, I've a lot invested in the, uh, you know, in the old problem. I'm kind of hoping I can hold on to it for a while longer. And the good news is there's, there is a prolonged period of transition. So it's not quite as disruptive as it seems, but as, as Bill Gates once said, you know, in the short term, it never happens as fast as you think it is, but in the long term, it's bigger than you ever thought it was going to be. Sure, so I think sure. both of those are true. Yeah, great. Are you still doing? Are you still in the venture capital space, or you stepped oh, out? Oh yeah, no. In fact, it's really fun because the fund I'm associated with right now, called Wildcat Venture Partners, is raising a fund called the Crossing the Chasm Fund. Ooh. And literally, the only thing we're going to do in that fund is invest in crossing the chasm opportunities. Mm -hmm. And and we've got a whole setup for it. It's very exciting. Yeah, no, it's really fun. Yeah. But again, mm -hmm. it, it, crossing the chasm is that is that it's that first stage of vulnerability. You know, you're mm -hmm. past seed funding, you've got a product, you've mm -hmm. got customers, but you don't really necessarily have a company yet. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you know, you're, you're worried. And, and, and when you cross the chasm, you now have enough of a market, enough of an ecosystem, enough of an install base that you, 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 you know, one can say, hey, I expect you to be in existence for at least the next five to 10 years because you've got mm -hmm. real momentum. But mm -hmm. getting that momentum Really interesting challenge, particularly for B two B companies, yeah. uh, where, where you you know that that's where we specialize, and so that's what we're doing. It's cool. Yeah, yeah, fantastic, great. I just want to let the audience know that you can ask questions now on Facebook or um, YouTube or even on Zoom, uh, so we, we we can then ask those questions. So um, what, one more thing I wanted to ask you, really, and then I'm sure Rick has a bunch of other questions as other questions come in. So when you consider um, of course, you've had this illustrious career and, and you briefly talked about years of experience when you said, well, now this is the way I look at the world. And you also alluded to the fact that when you were starting your career, you would take any gig on because you had to pay bills and so on. And I guess the advantage of um, experience and wisdom that hopefully that comes with experience sometimes um, allows you to look at the world in a very different way, which is why, uh, you know, we've been privileged in a, in a bizarre sort of way on the show. We've had a lot of people, so maybe a little bit biased, of a, of a certain demographic, especially in terms of age, coming on, <laughs> coming on to the show. And, um, they, but they've taught us a lot of very important lessons. Um, and I, I want to ask you this question about you know, the dark side and the, the, the bright side of technology. Uh, and we all kind of technologists. We love it. We get it. We, we think it's cool. Um, talk us through what your view on um, any of these extremes could be in terms of, well, ext extremity of too much technology. What will it do to us over whatever time period? And uh, the other side, of course, because it's incredible in, in many ways and it's changing the face of how we exist and solving problems and, in fact, even eradicating poverty to some extent in many cases. Yeah, yeah, so talk yeah. us through how you look at the yin and yang or the, uh, you know, the, the, the dark side you know, and the bright side. I mean, again, in, in the short term, you see these dislocations. And yeah. my belief is that when there's been a radical dislocation, then, then society, in the form, typically in the form of government, maybe business yeah. and government combined, should intervene. Because in the short term, like evictions and then COVID, I mean, that kind of problem, you know, unexpected climate disasters. I mean, we intervene and we want to help. We can do that at the level of, of society for the short term. 
But in the long term, it is a Darwinistic world. So in the long term, we have to evolve and we have to reshape to meet the reality of what's new. If you look at technology in in the long term, the statistics about the quality of human life, even though we, we think, oh my God, it's, it's never has been worse than this. Actually, yeah. the truth is it's never been better than this. And, and that's, I mean, it's, it's painful to say, but it's, but, yeah. but it's true. I mean, it's true, but there's a lot that you, you've seen those books that sort of look at all the statistics of life expectancy, you know, child mortality and you know, education levels and blah, 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 and poverty, you know, and, and yet, yes, there's a billion or whatever number of billion people is under poverty, and that's the same number that was 30 years ago, but there's more billion people on the planet. So, so at the huge macro level, I think technology is, on balance, a very positive force in the world. Having said that, you know, it can be used maliciously or it can be used, it can be used trivially. Like, like the one I'm, I think we're all worried about a little bit if we have children and grandchildren is this whole digital digital identity problem and kind of mm-hmm. like what's mm-hmm. what's happening to the human spirit and you know if we're just all caught up in screens all the time and trivial games and all that kind of stuff so th- there's always again that's by the way that's another example where the solution to the problem are hit so mm-hmm. that, by the way you're seeing really cool educational things you're seeing really cool creative games coming out of this thing i mean yeah. i think there's i think entrepreneurs will i have a lot of faith in entrepreneurs living their life at the boundary of the solution of the problem and, and kind of trying to advance that, yes. that boundary. Uh, uh, going yeah. I want to make one other comment because you, you used to tee this Please. off the fact you have old gray hair people on the, on, the, on, the, on the show. The last chapter of the book is called Being Mortal. Mm-hmm. And what Being Mortal is about, but the, what the chapter says is, you know, when you're 20, 30 years old, there's not much upside in being mortal. I mean, you should be immortal. You know, mm-hmm. it's like infinite, I have infinite possibilities, go, go, go. And then even I, I argue like even between 30 and 50, that there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, you're, you might be married, you might have kids, you might have mortgage, but how do you, mortal business. But somewhere around the time you go between 50 and 60 and you go, I'm in the second half. Mm-hmm. We're in the second half of the, of the game here. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I just turned 75. I'm in the fourth quarter. <laughs> so it's like, okay, okay, four, okay. So, so I divide being mortal up now into two chunks. Being Mortal, because there's a b- really good book by a guy named uh, Atul Gawande called Being Mortal, and it's about hospice and how, how when you're, when you're uh-huh. in the last yes. stage of life, how can you improve that? So I yeah. said, and I was inspired by that book, by the way, I said, that's mm-hmm. Being Mortal, I'm going to call that Being Mortal Part 2, mm-hmm. which is kind of when you're playing defense. You, you, mm-hmm. you, you've now had something happen to you and you realize, okay, I'm, I'm in a degrading situation. I need to pre- prevent erosion as much as I can, improve the quality of life for whatever I have left, blah, blah, blah. But, but the most of the chapter is about what I call being mortal part one, which is, okay, so what do you, do you care about legacy? And, and a lot of people that, at this stage in life do. You care mm-hmm. about impact. So, so how are you going to maximize your impact and, and sort of maximize your legacy? Because you're part of a narrative. When you're mm-hmm. gone, there's still a, I, my grandmother is still alive and well in my life because she's part wow. of a lot of stories, and a lot of narratives, and a lot of sayings. And it's so, it's, you know, so you want to be part of that? If so, what, what, what do you want to be part of that? And so I think what's neat about that is what you realize is you've got more freedom than you've ever had, assuming you're in good health and, and you know, you're, you're sort of economically in, in a position where you have some discretionary time to do kind of whatever you want. And so it's a really, and, and to think however you want, to kind of frankly say stuff that, hence this book, uh, you know, uh, because 
Why not? Uh, and that that's very liberating. But but I think it's I think it's it's a game you play. I think it's a game that's optimized for the fourth quarter. And I think earlier on, there's other games that need attention first. Mm, you know, in, in some ways, you're getting to this. But what I want to ask you as we're winding down here, um, with your infinite staircase coming out very shortly here. And exactly when does it come out? August eighth. August eighth. So literally, folks, uh, Sunday. It's a Sunday. Okay, maybe, maybe it's the 10th. It's, maybe it's next okay. week. It's, it's sometime next, next week. Early next week. Okay. I'm not um, good with numbers. And my question for you is, um, whenever you write a book, there's a spark. There's something. There's a reason for that. There's a thread that you're following. There's a, a passion that has sparked inside of you. What are you hoping the audience takes away from this particular body of work around Infinite Staircase after they read this? What are you hoping <laughs> is the impact from this particular piece of work? You know, it's a great one because, you know... Uh, I'm not sure what problem I was, I, I was actually trying to solve a problem for myself, which is, could I even explain it? Mm -hmm. So I guess what I would hope them to take away is a couple of things. From the first two thirds, which is the part about it describing the situation, the last third is about describing the response. Mm -hmm. But the first two thirds, I hope that one or a, another stare inspires them to go, whoa, that's interesting. I think I should read more about that. For me, the stare that just blew my mind was biology, specifically mm -hmm. molecular biology, mm -hmm. like this mRNA thing with the, the, with the visor, you know, with right. the vaccine. I, I just, I was absolutely blown away, by, and I, I would read anything. I like for four years, I, anything I could read about molecular biology, I would read just because I got fasted. So that'd be the first thing I'd hope I'd take away. The second one from the last one is, like all these frameworks, like the zone framework, um, there's a zone for kindness, there's a zone for fairness, there's a zone for morality, there's a zone for justice. There are different zones, there are different rules. You need to honor the zone that you're operating out of. You, you need to, and therefore, and, and try not to apply the rules of one zone into, in, into another zone. Mm -hmm. And, and because, because that's, when the, that's when things get, get confused and, and, and dark. And so I guess that would be the other piece, but that may be a little bit of a stretch. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. I, I don't know exactly where that's going to go, but I'm, I'm interested to find out. Phenomenal. I, I think it will make a material impact. And I can speak for myself, of course, it's subjective. Um, there is another question and we'll, we'll just last minute or so. It's, it's a good one. Um, of course, complimenting you on the very interesting talk. And then what is the next big tech or problem solution that you're interested in? And what might your next book be about oh uh, well okay next book might be a little bit of a stretch but but for sure <laughs> i mean the the big the big thing is digital transformation and, mm. and, and, and at, at the very bleeding edge of that stuff it, it's all around the machine learning ai how is that going to interfect intersect with the internet of things mm. edge computing i mean the, there's just a ton of stuff there yeah but i'm also um you know i am interested in in these much more local application specific things about I love living at the at the efficient frontier of solution and problem. Mm. And that is not that you don't have to go 20 years in the future because that efficient frontier exists every day that we're on the planet. And so a lot of times people are looking way ahead. It's like, great, good, good. Why don't you do that? But by the way, there's a bunch of stuff right in front of us that, and, and by the way, it's economically very rewarding because people are struggling with this stuff today. So they have money to spend on it. Right. And you can improve the quality. So I, lo I love the locality of that, of that, of that frontier. Mm, fabulous. Nicely put, actually. Um, great. So we, we're coming to the end, Rick. And um, 
And my last question to you is, with it, with all of this knowledge, you look fantastic for 75, by the way. I just want to compliment you. Your brain is working at an incredible pace. And we noticed that with a lot of um, people who are a, f a few years older than us, that the pace at which your, your, your brain is working, the way you're thinking is really phenomenal. I wish when, when I get to that stage, I'm as sharp and as switched on. Um, and so really want to compliment you on that. I'm sure your, your grandchildren can see it and your, your kids can too. So it's phenomenal. So well, well done. Congratulations. Um, credit to your partner, of course. Well, exactly. Credit to Marie <laughs> and, and the family. And, 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 and by yeah. the way, 50 years of meditating. Meditation yeah. does help too. It really mm. does. Yeah. Very okay. cool. Good, good to know that. Thank you. Thank you so much for my end. Rick, um, why don't you close off the, the, the proceedings today? Yeah, and just thank you so much, Jeff, for all that your, your passion. Your passion just exudes uh, with your wisdom and your words. And um, I wish you great success. We all do at Straight Talk Live. And we'll be doing our part of uh, creating a speakers page and your profile for you and any links that you want to send. Uh, we're going to help promote some of your work uh, through our means that way. Thank you. Um, and then where can people find out more about you and your upcoming book? Where should they go? Well, the, if, if there's, there's a, there's a website for the, there's a website for me, which is kind of the business side of my world. And then there's a website for the infinite staircase. I think it's Jeff Moore. I, I if you put infinite staircase. I think you'll, you'll find it. And those, those are the two places. Okay. God bless. God bless the world wide web. <laughs> Amen. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you again for being part of our tribe now at straight talk live and being part of our narrative and contributing to that. Thank you. My and pleasure. It's an honor. It's yeah. a great, great conversation. We'd love to have you back. And uh, just for all of those uh, tuning in for next week, really briefly, we're going to bring uh, on Max Goldberg, who really fascinating space around hospitality. If you think about all the changes that have happened around service industries and travel and hotels and all the crazy things that have been disrupted, you know, how do you actually rebuild in today's climate? It's going to be a fascinating conversation from someone who is really at the forefront of that, of that space. So all of you continue to straight talk out there in your worlds and be, pay attention to the narratives that you're spinning, how you're listening to others' narratives and making meaning along the way. So thank you all so much and um, speak to you soon next week. Be well, everyone. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you, Jeff. My pleasure. Bye-bye.